Father, we thank you because of what you accomplished through the redemption of our sins and the coming of Jesus Christ our Lord and in his manifest work on Calvary, his victory over the grave, his subsequent resurrection, his subsequent glories that Peter writes of that we will study today. We thank you that our voices as a redeemed can join with the heavenly chorus the beings whose sole purpose is to utter forever, holy, holy is your glorious and holy and majestic and exalted name. We thank you, Lord, that there is an open invitation through the torn flesh of Jesus Christ, our Lord, beyond the veil of the fallenness of this life, Lord, into the presence of a holy God, where forever and without end there have been since creation and beyond, Lord, these creatures who give you praise who lift up your holy name. There are the saints who have gone before and have entered into their heavenly reward that worship and praise before the Lamb of God. And there are those of us, Lord Jesus, that will soon join them, that echo our praises here, looking forward to the moment when we will all sing together before your throne of grace. And there are those whom you've called from every tribe and tongue and nation as history continues and as your long suffering with this earth, Lord, unfolds and as you gather for yourself an untold number of the elect, we thank you that they too will join one day in this great song of praise, celebrating your victory over the grave. I pray today, Lord, that our spirits would be encouraged and lifted, that any discouragement that we might be tempted to indulge in as a result of the battles and the afflictions and the temporary state that we have in this intermediate time, I pray that all these things would be washed away in a flood of overwhelming joy as we draw deeply from the wells, the water, from the wells of salvation that Isaiah prophesied in chapter 12 and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Lord, we relate to the woman at the well who found at that place not just water for the next week, but indeed living water as her sins are washed away. And she could rejoice and tell her neighbors, come see the one who told me everything I ever knew. One greater than Jacob is here. The Messiah has come and Jesus Christ is he. We give his name praise and we exalt him. And we pray that he would be exalted in the proclamation of his word and at his table today. And that his people would be encouraged and strengthened. That they would be emboldened in their faith and equipped to spread the news of your kingdom far and wide for as many years as you tarry. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we join together in the privilege of fellowship around God's holy word. I would invite you to turn to 1 Peter 1 this morning, verses 10 through 12, 10, 11, and 12 will be our primary text today. This will be number three in our uh, series for Communion Sunday, where we're opening the book of 1 Peter to be followed, Lord willing, by 2 Peter. We've noted the context as Peter is writing to a group of new believers who are new to the culture of the faith as they have not necessarily grown up in the Hebrew trappings and so forth. They, after all, are the elect exiles among the dispersion, the distant regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Nevertheless, the word of God is sufficient to give them encouragement and hope though they are somewhat distant from Jerusalem and the center of God's work up to this point in history, and also though they are small in number among a pagan people in an expansive empire. The words of the apostle pointing to the word of Christ that had preceded him and under the, under the inspiration of spirit, the word of God that he proclaimed will be sufficient to give grace to this church to endure 
and all the church for all time as we heed these words of life. The title of this morning's message is Heirs of Revelation. The church at the time when Peter writes, he instructs them that they are the inheritors of a great estate, if you will. They are the heirs of the revelation, the knowledge of God and His Word that has preceded this time and has culminated in the coming of Christ. We ourselves share in this experience. We can relate. We also, who have received the gospel, confessed our sin and placed faith in Christ, are also the heirs of a great history of revelation. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to awaken our souls to the transcending glories of the gospel. To awaken our souls to the transcending glories of the gospel, and this will have certain effects. When our souls are alive to the reality of the glories of the gospel that transcend time, that transcend history, transcend our life, our experience, even unto the new heavens and new earth, this has an effect. It lifts our spirits and grants us grace to endure trials, hardship, and whatever we might be faced with by way of immediate circumstance and the difficulties of this life. And so herein is a deep well, tying into our message from last week, a deep well that Peter recognizes and grants to the church from which to draw the living water from the wells of salvation to reinforce them in their hour of need. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word today as we consider 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Out of reverence for God's Holy Scripture, we stand this morning, listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving, not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Peter opens his letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion who are fledgling to some degree in their newborn faith by framing the historical era of early church age in the con- of the early church age in the context of redemption's larger timeline or sovereign history. Remember who the author or the who the audiences of this letter? 1 Peter 1:1. 1, 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's the author, to those who are elect exiles, that's his audience, recipients of this epistle, this letter, of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, and so forth. Elect exiles, they are the recipients of this letter. Just a reminder, young people, do you remember? We are elect because what? Can someone finish the sentence? We are elect because? Jesus, because God has? God has chosen us, that is correct. We are elect because God has chosen us. We are exiles because... Does anyone know what an exile is? An exile is someone who is not in his homeland. Okay, We are elect because God has chosen us to a homeland 
that we have not quite arrived at yet. Elect God has chosen us. Exiles, we are distant in some ways from our homeland. So these are the recipients of 1 Peter. Peter opens his letter to people in this state and reminds them of the glorious promises of their future and the certainty of the same by calling their attention back to this long chain of revelation. And he's pointing out that they are heirs of a rich history. Suddenly, in light of this, the trials and afflictions of early converts to Christianity in this widespread, thoroughly pagan culture are placed in perspective, and they seem trivial by comparison. The temporary hardship of life as a believer in a pagan or hostile culture is trivial by comparison to the riches of the history, the revelation of the history of the revelation of the gospel of our God. From the moment the first word of truth was spoken to Adam and Eve in the garden following their sin, Genesis 3.15 comes to mind, through the era of the patriarchs, into the era of the judges, through the era of the prophets, major and minor, through the 400-year intertestamental period, or so unto the arrival of Christ in the incarnation, and then the apostolic and church age which followed his arrival, where those that he had raised up and appointed, proclaimed, interpreted, and applied the meaning of the proclamation of his kingdom gospel, all of this is a perspective, provides perspective that makes the difficulties of our day-to-day lives as a Christian trivial by comparison. Christian perseverance is tied directly to appreciation of the miracle of salvation's plan through the course of history. Jesus proclaimed as much in Matthew 13, 16 through 17, would you turn with me to a great cross-reference that makes the same point? Again, Matthew 16, or 13, excuse me, 16 and 17. Jesus, again, in proclaiming to the disciples a point of perspective as to the value of what they were experiencing, he says the following, But blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Do you see what Jesus is calling the attention of the peoples unto? He said that you are privileged beyond the prophets. You might think, wouldn't it be amazing to be Isaiah, and to be there, and first-person experience of the temple vision in Isaiah chapter 6. We might touch on that vision again later. Jesus says there's something better. There's something that the prophets and the judges, the faithful, the saints of old, and those who served in the, as, in the lineage of Revelation as it moved forward and folding through history, there's something that they long for that you have experienced. That is to say, your eyes have seen and your ears have heard the fullness of the gospel arrived in Jesus Christ our Lord and his manifold work of redemption. Think of all the faithful who died believing their Messiah would one day come, but who never had the opportunity to set their eyes upon him in the flesh. We think of Simeon in the temple as we call, we recall his story and Anna the same. When the infant Christ is brought into the premises of this area of worship, 
And he says, now I can die in peace. My soul can be at rest. He has seen the consolation of Israel as he looks upon this child. But Simeon and Anna were privileged to be born at the time of Christ's incarnation. But they were preceded by prophets and saints of old and many faithful who died without their eyes seeing and their ears hearing to that degree the promises fulfilled. The primary beneficiaries, therefore, the primary benefit of the prophecies of old would not be realized by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, David, Moses, or Samuel, but instead by the believers of the church age, by the believers who now populate the church of Jesus Christ. Even today, we are more privileged than they with the perspective of sovereign history allowing us to realize in greater degree, the things that they prophesied fulfilled in Christ. New Testament converts, even you and I, the elect exiles that Peter writes to, we have a greater privilege and greater blessing and greater inheritance realized in our knowledge and experience than even the prophets of old. Yes, even the ones who ministered under the inspiration of the Spirit to, de to deliver the very words of our Lord. <clears throat> Think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 12. He ministered, this was our text last week. He ministered to a people whose ears were stopped and whose were blind sovereignly under judgment to the knowledge of the truth. But he prophesies of a day yet future when such would not be the case. Remember Isaiah 12.1? You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Later he speaks of this day again in verse 4, and you will say, again he says, in that day, <clears throat> give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. And then we turn to 1 Peter, and Peter the apostle says, in effect, that day has arrived. The day that Isaiah anticipated when he wrote of an audience yet future, whose eyes would be open and whose ears would be unstopped to hear the gospel, it has arrived upon the landscape of history. And now as people confess their sins and place faith in Christ, realize Him as their Messiah and Savior, a whole wealth of revelation riches is available to us. This is the message of Peter's uh, letter to the church. It turns out, that we, brothers and sisters, saints of God in this room, if you've confessed faith in Christ, if you are a Christian, if you are born again, it turns out that we are the heirs of riches accumulated over thousands of years. This changes everything. It's a brief illustration. Imagine winning the lottery, $100 million, but the ticket just sits in your junk drawer and you haven't realized what you have in, uh, entitled to you as a result of this great sweepstakes, right? So the next day you wake up like any other morning, let's say you've fallen on hard times, and you pull out a loaf of bread, and you have to scrape off a little mold. I remember doing this in college. You have to scrape off a little mold, and then the bread that remains, you put in the toaster, perhaps two slices if it's a good day, and you sit down to enjoy just this little bit of breakfast hoping that one day your fortunes might improve. Well, then you get the phone call. Your relative tells you, hey, why don't you check? I just heard that the Powerball has come in or whatever. 
And uh, why don't you check that ticket that's, that I know that you bought or whatever, and so you do so. And suddenly you realize that everything has changed because you are now the owner of hundred $100 million dollars. You see, when we do not realize the value of the gospel, life, you know, it's like, it's like scraping off the mold off a crust of bread, and that's our attitude and approach to our daily life. Well, Peter points us to the riches that we have in Christ, and he reminds us that we are the heirs of revelation that has preceded us by thousands of years of the accumulated revelation of the glory of God. And now he says, live like spiritual millionaires. You don't have to live on the breadcrumbs and crusts and uh, moldy scraps of discouragement and despair. You don't have to live on the moldy bread of fear of death. You don't have to suffer under in your consciousness the heavy boot of ancient Rome or corrupt America anymore. You can realize in your soul that the riches that are accrued to your account because of the work of Jesus Christ, grant you a ticket to heaven, to glory, to riches, eternal, beyond compare and beyond comprehension, such that your endurance and your strength and your resolve and your joy and your worship and your faithfulness to the Lord and your desire to proclaim His glories and to live in light of His truth Indeed, even your practical holiness is so affected by this knowledge that it changes everything. This is the context of Peter's admonition to the church. We are heirs of revelation. Here's a heading, the sufferings and glories of Christ as the epicenter of three things. Number one, prophecy. The sufferings and glories of Christ are the epicenter, or they are the center, the ground They are the featured uh, event, if you will. They captivate the attention of the prophets. The sufferings and glories of Christ are the epicenter of prophecy or the scriptures. The sufferings and glories of Christ are the epicenter of preaching, according to Peter. And thirdly, they are the epicenter of history and heaven. This is all wrapped up in the truth of revelation of the gospel. Look again at our scriptures today. Concerning this salvation, what is this salvation? Well, let's summarize in this beautiful phrase in verse 11, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So using Peter's own qualification for what is salvation, we could say the sufferings and glories of Christ, the prophets prophesied of these about the grace that was to be yours and searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted these things. That is, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So that is to say, according to Peter, the work of Jesus Christ in, on Calvary and his victory over death and his resurrection, his excuse me, ascension to the right hand of the Father, his session, which is his continual reign at his right hand, these are the things that are the subject and the feature, the theme, and the epicenter of biblical prophecy. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Let me give you a for instance. That is to say, how are the sufferings and glories of Christ 
the subject and the center of biblical scriptures and prophecy, of the scriptures and prophecy. We'll turn with me to a sermon by Peter himself in Acts chapter 2, if you would, and we'll see examples how this is true. No doubt in Peter's uh, mind and his experience as he writes is his apostolic call and those momentous, in the momentous occasion where he first began to announce with the other apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the truth of Christ coming for the salvation of mankind to all who will hear. And this is his Pentecost sermon. Some of the first words of gospel proclamation spoken after Christ had sent his Holy Spirit. Notice Acts 2.25. For David says concerning him, again this is Peter preaching, he says, David says concerning Christ, that is, quote, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. If these words sound familiar, it's because they were our worship text this morning. Quotations from Psalm 16. In verse 29 and 30, Peter continues to preach. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So you see, Peter is acknowledging in this sermon what he's proclaiming to the outlying regions of Asia Minor, the connection to the prophets and the sufferings and glories of Jesus. When David exclaims in Psalm 16 that you have made known to me the paths of life and you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption, Peter says he was not speaking first and foremost of himself. After all, David did succumb to death and he was in a tomb somewhere in Israel, presumably at the time when Peter preached. But David was speaking as the lineage of Christ. He was adopting the first person prophetic, if you will, and speaking of his son. There was one in the line of David who could truly say, without any qualification, that he, his flesh would not see corruption. Though he would die, he would not remain in the grave. The death grip of Hades could not cling to him. However white the knuckles of Satan's plan were, nevertheless, by the Spirit of God and by the sovereign decree of the Holy One, who agreed to both send his son to die and then raised him from the dead three days later, the death grip of hell was released. The death grip of the grave could not grasp our Savior anymore. And so David, as a prophet, foretells this day, to some degree even unbeknownst to him, in Psalm 16. Imagine David writing this song and thinking to himself, well, I know that I will die someday. I will give up the ghost like everyone else who is born of Adam. I wonder if there will be one, a Messiah in the future, 
who will be born of a different sort. Perhaps the second Adam, you can think of the wheels turning as the prophets of old wrote down their spirit-inspired scripture and then inquired of that very word that they had been commissioned to write. I wonder who it is who will bear the burden of our sin, who it is who will declare victory over the grave. I wonder what time he will arrive. This, is the, this was the preoccupation. This was the, uh, these were the meditations of the prophets of old, as Peter writes, concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Even prophets like David, who decreed of one in his lineage that would rise from the grave, that have victory over it, that would not see corruption. Another, for instance, how the prophets spoke of the sufferings and glories of Christ. Next chapter in Acts, chapter 3, another sermon by Peter. This time Peter is preaching Solomon's portico. He's glorifying the Lord. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Notice verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. What Peter is doing is pointing to the acts of Jesus Christ and his suffering, his resurrection, that is, his sufferings and his subsequent glories, and telling the crowds that gathered at Solomon's porch, He says, God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. He thus fulfilled those things in the acts that had taken place among them just days prior in Jesus' death and resurrection and so forth. Notice verse 21. Whom heaven, speaking of Christ, must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, Long ago. And then here's a for instance from Peter's own mouth. Quote, verse 22. Moses said, quote, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. He goes on, verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And 26, God having raised up his servant, that's his glories, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So you see, here Peter acknowledges in this sermon that Moses wrote of Jesus Christ to come. And again, we place ourselves in Moses' shoes. We think about that Deuteronomy 18 text, by the way, from which he quotes Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. And Moses must have wondered, according to 1 Peter 1, who will be the prophet greater than myself, the leader of God's people, who will satisfy effectively once and for all intercession for the people, who will usher in that great kingdom, Who will make of us a great nation and a light to all the nations? Who will oversee the very atonement that will wash away sins forever? I wonder what his name will be. I wonder who he is. I wonder what sort of man he will be. And I wonder the day and the time of his coming. After all, 1 Peter 1 tells us again 
concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So the sufferings and glories of Christ are the epicenter of prophecy. This according to Peter. It's implied in 1 Peter 1. It's demonstrated in Peter's sermons in Acts 2 and Acts 3. This, these uh, passages of Scripture carry with it an explicit hermeneutic. That is a clear way of interpreting Scripture. What is a hermeneutic? A hermeneutic is a method or principle of interpretation. This is extremely important. Why? Because the Bible is co-opted by all sorts of individuals, many of them believers and misguided perhaps, but many more of them unbelievers who are exploiting the Word of God to their own twisted ends. You might hear someone say, well, that's your interpretation, or the Bible can be interpreted many ways. There's even a movement in our culture today called postmodernism, which holds, since there can be innumerable interpretations of any text, therefore there is no right interpretation. Now, I'm here to tell you, even logically, that's a non sequitur. There is, that is to say, a right interpretation of any given text, but you must take into account certain rules. That body of work and its author have the right to define their own terms. That's one of the rules of hermeneutics. And, so, and, and no less with the Scriptures, in fact, far more so, because the nature of the book. So when you're going to ask yourself, how ought we interpret Scripture, you should listen to the voice of Scripture itself. Listen when Scripture tells you, when the Apostle says that the sufferings and glories of Christ, in so many words, are the epicenter of prophecy. Listen to the voice of Scripture when it says that the uh, Spirit in the, the uh, prophets and the authors of Scripture of old was indicating and predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And as you do so, you will realize that the method or principle of biblical interpretation is actually given by the Bible itself, and it tells us the entire work is centered on Jesus Christ. This is a compilation of revelation across the course of God's sovereignly and sovereignly ordained history that builds for us a record by way of prophecy, fulfillment, and implication of what Jesus Christ will do, has done, and will continue to do as his plan unfolds through time. This is the explicit hermeneutic. This is the method and principle of interpretation the Bible prescribes for itself. It is its own hermeneutic, which establishes the Scriptures as a cohesive whole with a unified theme. And that unified theme points, again, to the sufferings and glories of Jesus Christ as its theme, as its center. Now, this is in contrast to what is sometimes called higher critical scholarship. And what does higher critical scholarship thing mean? Well, just think of something higher than Scripture that is an authority to judge it. And you could place anything, your own presuppositions, your own ideas, what you think the Bible might say according to your opinion, what you wish it would say according to your values, what scholars say according to their interpretation, what history says according to contemporary cultures at the time, what other uh, you know, books that were written around the time uh, might shed light on the Scripture. All of these are lesser rules and lesser standards and lesser authorities than the Scripture itself. Scripture is in a category alone. If you were to elevate yourself, scholars, science, that's a huge one these days, or any these contemporary works, other cultures, and so forth, 
as an interpretive grid of Scripture, then you are doing the book itself injustice on its own terms. The Bible tells you what it's about. It's about the sufferings and glories of Jesus. So submit to it. Do not twist it. Do not corrupt it by imagining through vain imagination it's about anything less or anything other than essentially the record of God's saving mankind from his sin through the provision of redemption and his Messiah who would come in time and transform everything. The sufferings and glories of Christ are the epicenter of prophecy, and as such, they provide a rule for interpreting Scripture. And there's even prophetic confirmation of this in Zechariah's words. Just recall these from some of our study in the Incarnation in recent weeks. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah prophesies of the significance of John the Baptist and Jesus himself, and he says in Luke 1.68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Listen, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Zechariah acknowledges here that the arrival of Jesus Christ and the arrival of John the Baptist on the landscape, on the scene of history, signals that that which was spoken by the prophets of old is coming to pass in his generation. Again, prophetic confirmation in the words of the Spirit-inspired Zechariah the priest that the sufferings and glories of Christ are the center of prophecy and of Scripture. Second major point this morning, the sufferings and glories of Christ are the center of true preaching, biblical preaching. Preaching by, that is modeled for us by apostolic example. Notice again in our primary text, Peter writes, Verse 11 or 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now notice he continues verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. In the things that you have now that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in angels long to look. There's a lot of connected ideas here. Suffice it to say, Peter is declaring to the church that the same Holy Spirit that inspired the prophets of old inspired the preaching of the fulfillment of the prophets through the apostles in his hour. He is also saying that the generation that would receive the fulfillment of the prophecies of old was now upon them or was, had now arrived in history such that those who were speaking, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Samuel, David, Daniel, and so forth, they were speaking to, directly to the elect exiles of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, the recipients of this letter. 
And furthermore, we can say by application and implication that they were speaking to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, so forth, David. They were speaking to us. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have, been have, been, have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. And one of the methods that God has sovereignly ordained this message arrive on the ears of the elect exiles at the time Peter wrote, and even today, is through biblical preaching, according to the apostolic example. And this preaching proclaims what the Spirit has inspired in the Scriptures, that the word of the prophets is fulfilled in the sufferings and glories of Jesus Christ. This is the epicenter of biblical preaching. It is a proclamation without equivocation of the truth of Jesus Christ come in history, slain for sinners, risen, ascended, and ruling at the right hand of the Father. This might seem obvious, it ought to be, but it is lacking in the church, at least confessing church, these days. This kind of preaching, an unequivocal statement of fact, an authoritative proclamation echoing what the apostles have already said, is often absent in an age of revivalist, self-centered apostasy. And I'm here to tell you that revival will not come without repentance in this regard. Now, this is a standard you must hold me to in anyone who claims to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Biblical preaching holds as its epicenter the announcement the proclamation of the sufferings and glories of Christ as the fulfillment of the word of all of Scripture. Let me tell you what preaching is not. Preaching is not just starting a conversation. It's not a list of suggestions. It's not a bunch of probing questions. It's not a lot of preferences. It's not a series of what-if hypotheticals. It's not a re... Uh, uh, it's not a bunch of wishful thinking. It's not personal advancement or self-help gurus or TED Talks or un presenting an option or an opportunity or a sales pitch or sophistry or a peer review, a thesis, thesis statement for a doctrinal paper. It's not mere personal convictions. It's not convincing experience. It's not, or not convincing evidence. It's not personal experience. And while all these things maybe the popular context and subject of what people claim is preaching, all of them fall short of what true preaching is. It is the authoritative declaration of the sufferings and glories of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what it sounds like, turn again to Acts chapter 4. Again, going back to the sermons of Peter to provide context for his words here to the church, we hear his preaching, Holy Spirit-inspired apostolic declaration of the glories and sufferings of Jesus Christ. This time, he's before the religious council. I want to set the tone for you by pointing out that Peter is proclaiming truth to a self-acclaimed authority. These are the religious leaders that claim to have a monopoly on what constituted true worship. They were the ones who were the Hebrew experts and the culture and the law and the Phariseeism that was so rampant at the day. 
They were the ones that were celebrated as the heroes of what it meant to be a Hebrew, a true Jew at the time, and so on and so forth. They were seen as the paragons of virtue and the guardians of culture. And nevertheless, a common fisherman arrives on the doorstep of their council one day and proclaims with biblical preaching what is absolutely true. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Theme of our message, the suffering and glories of Christ as the epicenter of all religious history, of all truth, of all redemption. This is what Peter is proclaiming. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the self-proclaimed experts, the so-called builders. And this stone, Jesus Christ, has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is biblical preaching. This is the sound of proclamation. This is Peter declaring the truth without mincing words to those who saw themselves as the guardians of the truth that Jesus Christ had supplanted them and that their authority was illegitimate. And unless they bowed in repentance and faith before the very cornerstone of hope for the future, they would die in their sins and there would be no salvation. Their position notwithstanding, their significance notwithstanding, their education, their self-importance, and their uh, role and status and dignity notwithstanding, all of that is a, must be lost and the cross of Jesus Christ must be taken up if there was any hope for salvation. Why? Because Jesus Christ of Nazareth had come according to the prophets. He was crucified as Isaiah had prophesied in chapter 53. God had raised him from the dead as David had prophesied in Psalm 16. And now this Jesus, his word was being proclaimed through his apostles as the stone that the builders rejected, but in fact, the chief cornerstone of all hope of salvation. And so Peter, before the council, preaches in the apostolic example, a proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him alone and His sufferings and His glories as the epicenter of salvation and hope of eternal life. There are three driving, or there are three elements of preaching, at least, that are driven by this biblical ideal of sufferings and glories. The first I've given you is proclamation. The second is repentance. Peter calls for repentance here, by implication, he does so even more directly in his sermon at Pentecost, again in chapter 2. Notice verses 37 through 41. Now then they heard this. This is the audience listening to the proclamation of the gospel by Peter. Now then, now when they heard this, they were caught to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 40. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Notice Peter didn't say, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. However, provisionally that may be. He didn't say, I'd like to invite you to make, uh, to let Jesus into the door of your heart. He didn't say he stands as a perfect gentleman, knocking timidly at that, you know, waiting for you to turn the knob. No, he proclaimed that Jesus Christ was come and he commanded repentance. This is biblical gospel preaching. It doesn't proclaim the news as if the hearer is sovereign. No, it proclaims the truth knowing full well and communicating as much that each hearer is hellbound in his sin, deserves every bit of the judgment he will get unless and until he places his faith in Jesus Christ who has come and announced that before me every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So Peter points to the crowd and he commands them to repent of their sin, place faith in the Christ that he has proclaimed as dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended. He points his finger to the council, the religious leaders of the day, and he says the same. If you do not repent and believe you will die in your transgressions and sins, you better build on the chief cornerstone and not on the foundation of your imagination and your vain ambition. He points to the leaders of that day who clamped him in chains and he said, I have a higher authority still that I must serve. We must obey God rather than man. There is a higher authority still, and this is the authority that Peter and the rest of the apostles and all who stand in the apostolic example of proclaiming the word and the gospel of Jesus Christ fulfilled in his work on Calvary, they all do the same thing. They call for repentance according to the proclamation of Christ come. And then there is a third element of preaching, and that would be sanctification. And this is the context of 1 Peter 1. After all, these people have heard of the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. They have heard the gospel. They have repented. They have believed. But they need encouragement. And to them, Peter points to the sufferings and glories of Christ as the epicenter of not just the proclamation, repentance, but also sanctification. And he says to them that God has given them an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled. For those who are saved and need encouragement, our attention needs to be drawn to the value of what we have in Christ. We need our souls awakened to the transcending and transforming glories of the gospel. This is why the communion table is spread before us today, is it not? To remind us of the expensive cost of our own salvation. The fact that God had to become a man to take on flesh, to dwell among us. He had to be killed on that cruel implement of executive torture on the cross itself. His blood had to be shed. His body had to be broken for us to be saved. And this is and it gives to us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in future weeks we'll study this more, but as Peter continues to encourage the church 
In verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Therefore, so again, in light of Christ as the epicenter of prophecy, preaching, and more, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So you see, when our attention is drawn to Christ as the epicenter of our faith, and when our attention is drawn to the glories of our inheritance in him, it supplies motivation for holiness. That's the sanctification aspect of preaching. It provides exhortation for us to endure. This is the third use of the law, in effect, as Peter proclaims as much to the church. This brings up our final point today, which is the sufferings and glories of Christ are the epicenter, not just of prophecy, not just of preaching, but also history and heaven. <clears throat> just a note on this, without time for too much depth, I want you to notice how Peter uh, signs off, at least in our text today, in verse 12, speaking again, of the prophets of old, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There was a consummate timeline. There was a sovereign ordering of events that Peter acknowledges and the prophets knew of old. They just didn't know when exactly those events would occur. Thus, they would inquire of the person in the time of Christ's arrival. But the prophets weren't the only ones who searched and inquired carefully. It says here that the angels themselves longed to do the same. So you are an heir, if you are a believer in this room, of a glorious inheritance that is the envy of angels. Angels can appreciate to some degree the glories of God revealed in redemption, but not to the degree that you can. An angel has not fallen and then been redeemed and experienced the blood of Christ washing away their sins. Angels are either elect or fallen. There is no course for redemption in the case of these heavenly beings. We as humans are unique. We can understand Christ in our salvation experience as being abundant in mercy, steadfast in love. And we experience his work of redemption in a way that no other created creature can. Do you realize the value of your experience in Christ? It's something angels long to look into. The angels are excited at the revelation of the sons of God, as is all creation. There are times throughout the scriptures when as much as testified to, think of Christmas, a night if you will, the angels served as heralds in Luke 2.14, as we've been studying of late, and they said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The hosts of heaven, the angels of glory, announced to the shepherds, God gave them the privilege of declaring this news to these, this lowly band. Unto you is born this day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The angels were captivated by the knowledge of the incarnation, and they were privileged to bear that announcement to the shepherds. But when the shepherds went and visited that baby in the manger, like Simeon and Anna who held him in the temple, they experienced something that an angel will never know. 
They experienced faith in a Messiah who could wash away their sins, redeem them from sure and certain judgment, ransom them, wash them clean, give them robes of righteousness, and count them among the beloved, and give them a ticket, if you will, a future in glory, citizenship in the new heavens and new earth. <clears throat> the timeless significance is heralded by angels. The throne room seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 sing forever, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And who is the Lord? The one who in his act of redemption can reach into history as pictured with that coal and touch the lips of his servant and say, Today you are cleansed. And he has does, done so by reaching down in history and offering his only son who died in our place. And we reach out to him and by his blood we are cleansed. The angels celebrate Luke 15.10. It says, all the hosts of glory, as it were, join in celebration when even one sinner repents and believes. I don't know if it was posted on Facebook. Perhaps you've heard news already. But the Thompsons are in Ethiopia and serving in some ways as missionaries. They're on mission to bring the gospel to Sun Knight's family, among others, and so forth, and spread the knowledge of hope in Christ. And God has blessed their efforts and answered our prayers, and Sun Knight's brother, Dogham, has confessed faith in Christ. We heard this week that at the end of uh, the, uh, worship, they're doing some devotions in the evening, and it ended with Dogham on his knees praying in Amharic, his native tongue, and asking God for repentance for his sins and placing faith in Jesus Christ. The moment when that, thing, when that event happens, when that kind of thing takes place in your life, in Dogham, and all of the redeemed that God is calling out from the far corners of the earth, the heavens erupt in praise. The angels that populate the realms of glory join together singing, worshiping, glorifying, and celebrating a God who is so great that he has the power through his own shed blood to redeem his own from the clutches of hell. Should we not join them? Should we not join them? After all, we can appreciate this as heirs of this gift of the gospel as heirs of revelation in ways that an angel never could. Of course, we should join them. All history in heaven, and most of all, shame upon us if we don't. Lord, give us conviction if our praises lack. Most of all, we ought to, of all beings, privileged to experience the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, break forth into proportional praise upon the realization that is the sufferings and glories of Christ that are the epicenter of our salvation, true gospel preaching, the prophecies of old, and they captivate the attention of all history and of heaven. What are the implications of this supernatural gospel? Well, as you think about that, we've touched on a few of these, but... They carry with it the high view of Scripture. Peter endorses a high view of Scripture if there ever was one. Carry with it the implication of holiness of conduct. That's fruit of meditation and taking seriously a message like this today from the words of Peter. The doctrine of inspiration is involved in Peter's words. A Christian philosophy of history which we've identified in other messages as time measured by the progress of redemption is implied here. The doctrine of sovereign grace is evident. The superior value of the gospel, the honor of its forebearers, as we see God using the patriarchs, prophets, and others of old to carry forth the message to us, the heirs of revelation, 
by that scripture and by their testimony which preceded us. A gospel hermeneutic which teaches us the understand, uh, to understand the theme of all of scripture. Perseverance in affliction, endurance, much like the church at this time needed, is available to us as we feast upon these things in a true and abiding expression of worship in spirit and truth that would attend us even today. All of these things are connected to this knowledge. Thus Peter proclaims to the church of his day and the church for all time to hold the sufferings and glories of Christ as the epicenter of your life, of your affections, and of your subsequent decisions in your sanctification process, in your worship experience, the theme of your meditations, the theme of more and more of your conversations, so on and so forth. And by this means, may we be found faithful this year to the task of appreciating our great salvation and more consistently sharing that with others, joining the angels that rejoice at the marvelous, uh, at the marvelous unfolding of God's sovereign work in history. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the message of hope in Jesus Christ that is secured for us through his sufferings and sealed for us in his glories, including his resurrection and all that follows. We thank you, Lord, that these truths hold within them the power to equip and encourage your church to be faithful and consistent, enduring, persevering, and fruitful to advance your kingdom moving forward. We pray even at your table this day, as we remember the cost of our own atonement, that you would stir within us a deeper knowledge, that you would awaken our souls to the transcending glories of the gospel, and that by these means you would equip your church, Lord, to stand even in a day that may be hostile, knowing that there is nothing that can defeat the love of Christ, not height, nor depth, nor principality, nor power, things present, things to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ our Lord, which He purchased by His broken body and shed blood. In His name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.